0: tablet and printed out my sermon. In case the tablet failed, I'd have a printed copy that I could just pull out and use, except for this Sunday. And the tablet won't connect to the internet and pull down the message for the day. So that's the technical difficulty we were having, and uh, so I'm having to rely on my computer. If I had just printed it out, like I always do, I wouldn't be here in this situation. So You'll bear with me if I have to struggle a little bit. Our scripture uh, this afternoon comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and verses 35 through 51. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning with verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. One of the two who heard him speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. May the Lord bless our reading from his holy and his inerrant word. And let's look to him in prayer. Fathers, we take up this familiar scene this afternoon. We pray that you will allow us to see it with fresh eyes. We ask you, Lord, to bless it to us. And, Lord, we pray that you would use it to instruct us and to correct us. And, Lord, to bring us along in our faith and in our love for you and our understanding of your love for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It seemed prudent at uh, this point to begin a series that focuses on the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to return roughly at least to the schedule that we announced a little while ago. So this isn't going to be a consecutive series, but I guess for one of a better term, an occasional one. Um, There are lots of suggested topics yet to be handled, and we're going to have to go through those as we move along here. But we'll be picking those up in weeks to come. And consequently, once or twice a month, perhaps, we'll be dealing with this subject. And it may, see, may seem to be a strange thing to focus on, no pun intended. But looking at the eye of Jesus provides us with a fresh way, really, to consider the Savior, And it presents us with some very delightful and some very sobering moments. Now, thinking in in this context as we start talking about the eye of Jesus, when you contemplate the Savior, you have to take into account that he's both a very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, as the Nicene Creed states, and we've been using that lately in our communion service. The Council of Chalcedon, the next uh, um, general council, ecumenical council, said a bit later, we all, with one accord, teach men to acknowledge one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, believing that, that is true. We understand that as God, the Lord Jesus sees as God sees. That is not just with the physical eye, but with the all-seeing eye that's described to us in the word of God. That eye that's able to search us and, and to know us. That eye that searches out our path and, and is acquainted with all our ways that as God, he is the one that Hagar called the God of seeing, who looks after us. But we also know that when the fullness of time had come, as Galatians 4 says, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And we understand that in this incarnation, the Son of God, who though uh, he was in the form of God, didn't count it equality with God a thing to be grasped, as Paul says in Philippians. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> now we call this event where Jesus does this, where he comes and and becomes incarnate. We call that the mystery of the incarnation. And we call it a mystery for several reasons. One, because of the great grace shown by God in it. It's it's hard for us to grasp and, and get a hold of the the condescension on the part of God uh, to come in the person of his son and to humble himself in this way and to be born of a woman. It shows great grace, grace that is hard for us to even get a a full grasp of in our minds and hearts. It's called the mystery of the incarnation because of the way it was effected. Um, There's a holiness about it that the scripture itself protects, and it tells us that the Holy Spirit overcame her, and and this was effected by the grace, and the goodness, and the power of God. And it's mysterious in the way it was accomplished. And we call it a mystery because of what was done for us by it. How did it come to this, that through this event, You and I should know the forgiveness of sins. That you and I should become new creatures through Christ Jesus. That we should be called the children of God. The the wonder of that is part of the mystery of this. And then lastly is just the nature of the thing itself. That is Jesus walking on the earth. Very God of very God. Very man of very man. The mystery of that event. Now, part of this emptying of himself and taking on the form of a servant involved on his part choosing to see not only as God sees, but as men and women see. And by that, I mean through physical eyes, Um, the same physical eyes with which we are born and we see through. Eyes that see a limited range of light and color. Eyes that see a limited distance. And in their weakness, sometimes even change in that regard, obviously, because I'm up here with this thing in front of me. Eyes that not only can't, uh, can only have, see in a limited distance, but that refers to both far and near. We can't see things too far away, and we can't see things too small. Uh, We have to get assistance to do that. And eyes that are limited to seeing what is only happening now. We we can't look and see what's going to happen ten minutes from now. We have to wait until it unfolds in front of our physical eyes, and then we see it. Um, We can't look back. We can't, with our eyes, see what we were doing this morning while Mr. Brillhart was preaching. We can't look back and see that. We can, in our mind, picture it, but with these eyes, we can't see it again. We can see a film of it where it's reproduced in front of us, but we can't go back and see the live-action thing. It's happening as it's happening, and that's how we see And it's truly a mystery as to how all this operated in the case of our Savior. Um, I don't think we can imagine what it was like for him, who could see the end from the beginning as God, to blink open his incarnate eyes in this world for the first time by the dim light of a lamp-lit night to look around. to, to, to be in that place where as an infant he opens his eyes and looks around for the first time through those physical orbs. The Puritan John Gill wrote a little book and when a Puritan writes a little book you would think it was a big book. It has a very unpretentious title. This is the title of John Gill's book, Christologia, or a declaration of the glorious mystery of the person of Christ, God and man, with the infinite wisdom, love, and power of God in the contrivance and constitution thereof, as also of the grounds and reasons of his incarnation, the nature of his mystery in heaven, the present state of the church above thereupon, and the use of his person in religion with an account and vindication of the honor, worship, faith, love, and obedience due unto him. That's the title of this little book. And then it's only 177 pages long. But it's a little tiny type in two columns. So it's actually like 600 pages long. But anyway, he wrote this, but even in his title, Gil sees, or he sets, I should say, before us the mystery of all this. And more importantly, the humble and the reverent way it ought to be meditated on by us, and really by all men. At one point, Gil says, and I'm paraphrasing here, You can try, according to all your various abilities, and we all have various abilities and understanding and so on. You can try, according to all your various abilities, to take this matter into consideration, this matter of the mystery of the Incarnation, and to humbly adore the infinite wisdom of God in the workings of this great mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh, But the fact that it is a spiritual mystery and the result of the infinite wisdom of God working in a great variety of actions and operations guarantees that your understanding will be limited. Just the very nature of this guarantees that no matter what abilities we bring to understanding this, our understanding will be limited, leaving you, he says, To wonder in praise and love at the goodness and the mercy of God. Now, human curiosity often leads to speculation, and speculation can really easily take us astray. So when we talk about the eyes of the incarnate Son of God, we're not going to speculate about their development from his infancy into adulthood. We're not going to Speculate about their color, you know, what, the, what color they were, or their imagined enchanting nature, which whenever Hollywood is trying to portray Jesus, they seem compelled to give him eyes that are uh, at one point or another just uh, magical in nature. We're not going to speculate on that or any of those things on which the word doesn't say anything. My design here in taking this subject up is much different. It's to take those passages from the Gospels in which Jesus is described as using his eyes and studying them from that perspective. So that brings us here to John chapter 1 and and verse 40. We're told that one of the two who heard John the baptizer speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother and he first found his own brother Simon and said to him we've found the Messiah which means Christ and he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him is the first place where we see that where we see that that specific exercise of Jesus looking and he looks at Peter and he says to him at that moment you are Simon the son of John you shall be called Cephas which means Peter, or we understand means the stone. Now, hopefully, this scene is a, a familiar one. I think it is to all of us here this afternoon. And Jesus is beginning what we've come to call his public ministry. John, the forerunner, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "'Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world.'" He goes on to describe him as the one that he said would come after him, who ranks before him, uh, whose uh, sandal, uh, thong, uh, tie he wasn't even uh, um, uh, able to, to tie, wasn't worthy to tie. And then he talks in verse 32 about how I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him and I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit to and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, says John, and bear witness that this is the Son of God. On the following day, John the forerunner again is with two of his disciples, the disciples John and Andrew. So we've got three Johns in this story. We don't wanna get them confused. You have John the forerunner, you have John the disciple, and then you have John the father of Andrew and Simon. So three different Johns. But John and Andrew are with John the forerunner, and he again says to them, behold the Lamb of God. And at that point, John and Andrew follow Jesus, and they end up spending the day with him. And the next morning... The things in our text take place. Andrew, who is Simon's brother, finds him and says to him, We found the Messiah. Or the Christ, the promised, the anointed one, sent by God for the deliverance of Israel. Now, we don't know what Simon's reaction was to this. We don't know what he said or what he did. It's not recorded for us. But we do know that Andrew took his brother to meet Jesus. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 42. He brings Simon to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says to Simon, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now when it says that Jesus looked at him or that he beheld him, It stands in contrast with that, or rather with what takes place later with Nathanael. We read in our scripture reading, but uh, it's in verse 44. We're looking now at Philip, and he was from the same city as Andrew and Peter, and Philip finds Nathanael, and he says to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael makes that famous statement, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, "We'll come and see. And again we see, now as Nathanael's coming, Jesus sees him. And as he's walking towards him, Jesus sees him, and he says to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael says to him, how did you know me? And Jesus answered him and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So this is a little bit different. When we're talking about when he comes to Peter, Peter's being brought to him, and that's when he looks on Peter. He doesn't talk about having any sight of Peter prior to that. But with Nathanael, he makes it clear that he saw him when he was sitting under the tree. And that arrests Nathanael, and Nathanael says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You are the king. This is the one we've been looking for. (coughs) So it's a little bit different situation. And it's clear that Jesus must have seen Peter, just as he had seen Nathanael. But what you're told about Simon is that Jesus fixed his discerning gaze on him. That's the way it's expressed here. When it says that he looked on him. He used those physical eyes, which were his now in the incarnation, and he fixed them on Simon. And I think you can picture this easily. If someone's speaking to you and you're occupied with something else, uh, maybe other thoughts or other things, and they say to you, would you please look at me when I'm talking to you? You know what you expect. You know what they expect if they say that to you. They're, that person is asking you to look directly at them and pay attention. And this is what Jesus did when he approached Simon. He looked right at him, right in, at his eyes, right into his heart as he looked at him. And he looked directly at him and fixed his attention on this man, Simon. And that attention communicated to Simon that Jesus knew who he was. He was Andrew's brother. Simon, the son of John. As we said, yet another John. And the first thing we note here is how intimately Jesus knew this man that he was going to make his own. They've had no introduction prior to this as far as we know. But Jesus has an intimate knowledge of who this man is as soon as he fixes his eye on him. It goes further than just knowing his name and his parentage. Jesus knew him. He knew Peter. The very way that Jesus speaks of Simon's name and the change that it would undergo implies an understanding of who the man was by birth and by nature. And it's the same way, beloved, with all his sheep. As uh, Hutchison says, Jesus perfectly knows all that come to him. And he reveals that knowledge to them so that they might be encouraged to employ him in all their trials and temptations and may walk before him as a heart-searching God. (coughs) He knows us, each one of us here, as intimately and as closely as he knew Peter. He knows who we are. He knows what we are. And one of the advantages that we can take from knowing that about him is for ourselves that he knows who we are not only in, in the moments when we are praising him and giving thanks and glorifying his name, but he knows who we are by nature. And he knows who we are when we're sad or when we're depressed or when we're agitated or when we're happy and joyous. He knows who we are, the, the character, the nature of who we are. And he knows you, beloved, just as easily and as fully as he knew Peter. And he looks on you with that same eye and behold you. He knows your name. He knows your pedigree. And he knows your nature. And still, despite all of that, he died for you. And that's the wonder of it. He knows that most of us don't have a famous pedigree. That we're not connected to important people in this world. But he still died for us. He knows our nature. He knows that we can be petulant, that we can be doubtful, we can be fearful, we can be tempted. He knows that, and yet he died for us. He knows all our weakness, as well as all our strength. And still, he died for us. And consider the matter from Simon's perspective also. Imagine being introduced to this stranger who stares into you and begins to speak familiarly with you. Think about how unsettling that is. Now, you and I have the advantage of hindsight here. You know who this is, who Jesus is, and you know exactly what's going on, and you have that theological description of who Jesus is that comes from the Nicene Creed and from the Creed of Chalcedon about him being very God of very God and very man of very man and you have a whole you have volumes of theological study uh, to, to reference all that and understand it but step out of that perspective for a moment and consider what's happening and isn't this part of what is both a bit frightening And at the same time, engaging about your relationship with your Savior. He knows you so well. He knows you so well. And he loves you so much. It's on the one hand a little frightening to think that he knows us like he knows us. But then it's also so comforting and so blessed to know that he loves us so much despite what he knows about us. Now, it's this way for the new believer to be sure, but it's also true for the seasoned saint. Sometimes we forget him, but beloved, though we forget sometimes who he is and what he is, he never forgets you and me. His eye is always on you. His gracious gaze is fixed on you. We might forget that he's looking on us until circumstances that have preoccupied us or distracted us become trying or difficult. And then we look up and we realize that he's looking at us in that loving and penetrating way. But his eye is always on us. And it's worth observing, I think, in this context that Jesus is under no illusions about Simon. He's just the son of John, a man in and of himself of no particular distinction. By every, by every revelation excuse me, that the Lord gives to you and me of his intimate knowledge of who and what we really are, he humbles us in order that we might be more dependent on him. And this look also communicated to Simon that Jesus knew who he would be. Because he says, you are Simon, but you will be called Peter. I think it's so easy to underestimate these moments and their significance, uh, to be, as it were, content with the fact that we've read the stories and we know the the order of events and the facts without really looking thoughtfully and prayerfully at what's transpiring and i'm already out of time this afternoon i'm just going to try to do this very quickly and and then we'll, we'll close in this case jesus is ministering to peter in a way peter doesn't yet fully understand but he's going to come to treasure in the days ahead it's Hutchison who reminds us that the Lord does not judge us by our weaknesses, but deals with us according to his own grace towards us. Here is Peter, this impetuous, vacillating character who will falter more than once. That's who Simon is by nature. But as Jesus looks on him for the first time with his physical eyes and sees him as only he can, he doesn't look at him as the man who will falter, but he looks on him as the man preserved and upheld by him. You are Simon. You are a little wishy-washy. But you will be Peter. And you'll be Peter because I will sustain you. And you remember that critical moment, right, when Peter is boasting about his faithfulness and how everybody else might falter and fail, but not me. And that's when Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." Simon, I hear you, I hear Simon's boast. And it's Simon the vacillator who's boasting here. But I've interceded for you, and I've arranged for your preservation, and you will be Peter, the rock who will not vacillate, but who will stand strong. And we can all expect trials and temptations. He scourges every son and daughter that he loves. But we can also expect and look for that grace which he's promised to all who are his. That though the steps of a man that are established by the Lord, that though he may fall, he will not be cast headlong because the Lord upholds his hand. Now, Peter could draw strength from this in years to come by God's grace, but there's one more thing I want to point out as we close here. Because there's a deeper meaning involved here. One with a wider application, an application to all believers. In these verses that we're treating with, and and this is A.W. Pink who brought this forward, and I appreciate his thoughts on that, and I want to be sure to point out that it's his thinking. We're on the third day, right? First day, he was revealed as the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. The second day, he's pointed out again, John and Andrew go with him and stay with him. And now it's the third day, and he's revealing himself. And Pink says, we have that which belongs strictly to the Christian era. Peter must be viewed as a representative character. Thus, viewed, everything turns upon the meaning of the proper nouns here. Simon means hearing. Son of John is correctly rendered, we believe, in, in the version that we have, Son of John. And John signifies God's gift. So here you have Simon the hearer, who is the son of God's gift. And we become Christians by hearing God's word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. And this spiritual hearing is God's gift, and by it, every believer becomes a stone. So Pink says, when you look at this, and you hear Jesus say this, there's something greater here than just the conversation between peter and christ there is a picture of what is happening here on the third day this man simon will be confronted by the resurrected christ he will be a changed man and he will become the stone because he's heard the word of god and pink says that's the story for all of us and then he quotes peter in First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, Peter says, As you come to him, that is to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are what we are because of the preserving grace of our great Savior. He looks on us in our weakness and sees us in the strength which he's provided for us, the preservation which he's provided for us. And He spoke of it in the Gospel of John. In chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We come in weakness, we believe the truth, and we become preserved, not by our own will, but by the will of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, bless these thoughts to our hearts this afternoon. May we contemplate the Savior with joy and thanksgiving and wonder. We pray, Lord, now that as we commit this to you, that, Lord, you will bring forth fruit of it in our hearts. We ask it in Christ's name.